Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest uh, vodcast. And this will be on evaluating acute and chronic pancreatitis. And this is a lecture I gave in December, uh, put together for uh, world-class CME. And so I thought I'd share it with you. And uh, acute pancreatitis is something we evaluate on a routine basis in all of our hospitals, particularly through the ER setting. And then if patients have complications, of course, then we end up uh, seeing them in the hospital setting. 300,000-plus admissions each year in the United States, and the cost is over $2 billion. When you think about acute pancreatitis, we divide the disease into two forms, interstitial edematous pancreatitis and then necrotizing pancreatitis. Necrotizing pancreatitis occurs as a complication in up to 30% of patients with acute pancreatitis. Many people have pancreatitis, of course, from a range of etiologies. Alcohol abuse and gallbladder disease are by far the most common, but trauma, post-operative complications, post-procedural complications like post-ERCP, certain select medications, and their rare scorpion bite. But 90% of cases are due to alcohol abuse or biliary disease. In terms of CT, what do we do? We're looking for the presence of pancreatitis. Sometimes there's a conflict between the clinical presentation, clinical symptoms, physical exam, and lab values. We often need to define the extent of pancreatitis, particularly in looking for complications which increase morbidity and mortality and often require intervention. Good review article by uh, Shu this past year on radiographics, acute necrotizing pancreatitis is a severe form of acute pancreatitis characterized by necrosis in and around the pancreas and is associated with high rates of morbidity and mortality. And we want to be more specific High rates of morbidity up to 95%, depending on the situation, and mortality up to 39%. There's lots of classifications for pancreatitis. The revised Atlanta classification is really focused on patient management in triage. When you think about CT, its value really is in the complications of pancreatitis. And almost any imaging modality can image the pancreas but really it's CT that's really excellent in looking for complications in a very easy to do format. We talk about patient preparation. We typically use oral contrast and we use water. We then use IV contrast. IV contrast is critical because you really can't recognize pancreatic necrosis unless you have IV contrast because you're looking for areas of decreased enhancement and that's what you see when you use IV contrast material. When we talk about protocols, we talk about phases of acquisition. Most patients with pancreatitis, one phase, usually venous phase, works well. Though in patients where you're worrying about bleeding, perhaps, then other, other phases, such as dual phase, would be very important. As I mentioned, water, about 1,000 cc's of water. And in terms of IV contrast injection, typically three cc's a second will work fine for routine pancreatitis. If you're worrying about a pseudoaneurysm, then you better go up to five cc's a second. We typically routinely now inject four to five cc's a second. Again, as I mentioned, portal venous phase in routine cases usually is satisfactory, but dual phase in complicated cases, particularly when you're suspecting vascular processes. If you look at a typical protocol, here's a very good protocol. Depending on the site, three millimeter thick sections every three might work, though we tend to use thinner collimation and can do reconstructions as necessary. And as I noted, the dual phase imaging particularly when you're thinking about any type of vascular complication, really is where you need to go. Now, when you look at the pancreas, the normal pancreas does enhance. And on arterial or venous phase imaging, particularly at around 50 to 60 seconds, 
this very nice brisk enhancement of the pancreatic gland. As patients get older, the enhancement may be a bit less. Younger patients, the gland's a bit larger, the enhancement's a bit greater. The head is a bit larger than the body and a bit larger than the tail, but it's minimal difference. And again, the enhancement pattern will vary a little bit depending on the phase of acquisition, the timing, and the amount of contrast you inject. But again, typically you do not see the pancreatic duct, though with high-risk scanners you often can. It measures one to two millimeters. And seeing the pancreatic duct is no problem. You can barely see it here. You can also see that as patients, uh, depending on their age and disease states or just normal variation, the amount of lobulations in the pancreatic gland, you can see the accessory spleen by the tail of the pancreas, very nicely seen in this situation. Now when you look at pancreatitis, you go through a range of pancreatitis. Stranding around the gland, which I would consider mild pancreatitis, very nicely shown there, minimal stranding, mild glandular inflammation. Here's another example. You can see the edematous changes in the gland, fluid around the gland, fluid in the anterior pyorenal spaces, right greater than left. But you can see that the entire gland enhances normally. So we're talking about mild pancreatitis. There's no evidence of necrosis, and that's a very critical finding. As you look at the more impressive cases, you begin to see more extensive inflammation. In this case, you can see fluid in the lesser sac. You can see edematous changes in the gland. And you're beginning to see areas where there's decreased attenuation within the gland, which is early pancreatic necrosis. And another example where you look in this case, there's more impressive inflammation, but what you're seeing also is areas in the mid-body of decreased or lack of enhancement. That's pancreatic necrosis. And you can see as you go to other cases, here there's much more significant changes of necrotizing pancreatitis because now you barely see any normal gland. You see what looks like diffuse inflammation, which is a bit denser and of higher attenuation around the gland itself, and then the tracking down into the mesentery. And this indeed becomes very, very important. Now with pancreatitis, we all know about fluid collections, particularly younger patients, the healthier the gland, probably the more fluid you'll see. Collections, left anterior pararenal space is one of the most common areas, as in this case. You can see also into the lesser sac, so you can see compression on the stomach. Here's a nice example of left posterior and anterior pararenal space. There's the posterior pararenal space, which pushes the left kidney forward. And you can see this tracking down very nicely uh, here as well. Now, usually we talk about left anterior pararenal space. When I see right anterior pararenal space, I'm always thinking about procedure-related. Here's a patient post-ERCP with a fluid collection around the head of the pancreas and the anterior pararenal space very nicely seen. We can see pseudocysts, well-defined fluid collections, lesser sac, very common. It, most of these patients, more than 50%, these will resolve on their own over time. If they don't resolve and they're large like this, then you could do a cyst gastroscopy where you can do a puncture through the stomach into the cyst and drain the cyst. And you can see that very nicely here. And again, here's one of the pseudocysts also tracking into the lesser sac. Sometimes they're lobulated. Sometimes they're multiple pseudocysts. Pseudocysts can track up into the posterior metastinum. They can train, track downward. In this case, you can see the traction is going to the left uh, psoas muscle. You can see they can track into the porta hepatis. 
And in fact, at times obstruct, though rarely, the patient's common duct. Very nice example there. You can see here it's going upward posteriorly near the spleen, near the GE junction, and can present at times on chest x-rays and mediastinal mass. In patients with gallstone pancreatitis, you can see lots of inflammation with secondary or primary involvement of the gallbladder. We mentioned before that gallbladder disease is a common cause of pancreatitis. So when you're looking at pancreatitis, you want to look carefully at the gallbladder as there may be marked inflammation of the gallbladder as well. Now, over the years, we've come across many terms for pancreatitis. Phlegmon is one of the classic terms. It's a good term. Everyone knows what it means, abscess, pseudocyst, necrosis. But the fact is there's a lot of change going on in terms of terminology, and in fact, the word phlegmon no longer exists though everyone knows what it means. We went through the Baltazar and Ranson criteria, grade A through E, where they came up with the severity index, which worked very nicely for trying to manage pancreatitis. And the severity index worked well. Severity of 7 to 10 had a 17% mortality and 92% complication rate. Under 3 was rarely associated with complications. There were simple classifications. We always joke about a view box classification. Mild pancreatitis, bad, very bad, and really bad. But again, people are trying to, really trying to target things so we can compare outcomes between institution and institution. When you look at things in terms of clinical diagnosis, usually imaging is not necessary. The diagnosis of acute pancreatitis can be made by clinical findings, typically abdominal pain, typically epigastric in location, radiating to the back, Serum amylase or lipase levels are three times higher than normal. Uh, when we do imaging is because we're uncertain if the patient really has pancreatitis, the lipase or amylase levels are not that high. When we're looking for a cause of pancreatitis and perhaps it's an underlying neoplasm, or when the patient's doing poorly and we're really concerned about early necrosis. Most of the time when we're using CT, it's after one week. There we're worrying about pancreatic necrosis, other complications, including pseudoaneurysms, using CT as a guide for management decisions, interventional radiology versus surgery versus endoscopic management, for example, and then also monitoring treatment response. When you look at pancreatic necrosis, we now break things into three categories. Parenchymal changes only, so parenchymal necrosis is less than 5% of cases. Peripancreatic necrosis only, around the gland, less than 20%. Most commonly, it's combined pancreatic and peripancreatic necrosis. Patients with peripancreatic necrosis only have a better prognosis because the gland itself is not so involved. When you talk about some of the pearls of pancreatic necrosis, typically we divide things into three, under 30%, 30 to 50, and over 50%. It's usually best seen at 40 seconds post-injection in the parenchymal phase. Uh, pancreatic necrosis can be very difficult to diagnose without any imaging studies. Now, when you look at the complications of necrotizing pancreatitis, we talk about infection in about 20% of cases, usually occurring two to four weeks after initial presentation. In less than 20% of infected collections, we do see air, so biopsy may be necessary to prove it's infected. So 80% or so do not have air. Now, infected necrosis has a very high mortality rate, which is why if you suspect necrosis, you're going to have to sample the fluid. It's very, very important. Now, other complications of necrotizing pancreatitis include inflammation of adjacent organs. For example, mass effect or obstruction of the stomach or small bowel is not uncommon. 
Small bowel or mesenteric inflammation is not uncommon. We can see some of the more uncommon findings, common duct obstruction, perhaps from a pseudocyst, or if the stone was the cause of the patient's pancreatitis. To begin with, you can see a pancreatic duct stricture, a disconnected pancreatic duct, pseudoaneurysm, hemorrhage, and venous thrombosis, which are really some of the key complications. Now, if I speak about complications, I'm typically always worried about pseudoaneurysms. It's typically a late complication and is more common in patients with repeated episodes of pancreatitis. The splenic artery is the most common vessel involved with pancreatitis and pseudoaneurysm, followed by the GDA, pancreatic duodenal, hepatic, and left gastric arteries. Pseudoaneurysms can rupture into a necrotic collection, into the GI tract, pancreas, or retroperitoneum, and these patients can bleed to death. Now, complications on the venous side can be acute or chronic, with splenic vein being the most common vessel involved, and SMV and portal veins can be involved, but less commonly. Now, in terms of management, we talk about intervention. We talk about image-guided percutaneous techniques, endoscopic drainage. We talk about laparoscopic necrosectomy and open surgical necrosectomy. Now, decisions are often based on local expertise, so it's not a perfectly decided how patients get managed. So it's very important to know what are your tool sets available. Is it surgery? Is it uh, your endoscopist? That will indeed be very important. Now, let's look a little bit more carefully at pancreatic necrosis. We define it as the lack of enhancement of the gland with liquefaction and loss of normal glandular contour or texture of a portion or the entire pancreatic gland. So let's go into this a little bit deeper, but I'll tell you what we'll do is let's just take a five minute break and then we'll pick up uh, part two of this lecture with pancreatic necrosis. Be right back and see you soon.